Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, verse 1. Isaiah 59, verse 1. I want to read this for us again. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. From one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And, and there is no justice in their past. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and brightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. 
and his righteousness upheld him. He put on a righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seats. We are now in our final installment of this sermon series on prayer. And on this, in this sermon series on prayer, we've had a, f- a few installments. The Bible makes bold claims and assertions about prayer. The Bible gives us wonderful promises concerning prayer. Call on the Lord, and he will hear you. Jesus said, ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be open unto you. Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples, after he told them to abide in him and the importance of abiding in in him, he told them, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. These are bold promises that the Bible makes concerning prayer. The, 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 The hope, the joy, The privilege that we have as believers is that we can carry all of our cares and all of our concerns to our Heavenly Father because He cares for us. And we have these wonderful promises that whatever we ask, God says, I will do it. The problem that we run into is oftentimes we don't experience the truth of those promises. We don't always experience the power of prayer as it is described in the Bible. At times we we pray fervently and faithfully, but we don't always get an answer to our prayer. So one of two things must be happening. Either God is a liar or something else is missing. One of the most frustrating things about prayer is praying and then having those prayers go unanswered. So what then do we do with this issue of unanswered prayer? 
Why would God make these wonderful promises to us in Scripture only for our actual experience to be those of unanswered prayers? Two weeks ago, we said one of the causes of unanswered prayer is a lack of faith. That's what James said. He, he, he says, when you pray, you ought to pray with, with no doubting. Because the person that doubts is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And so now we today, the prophet Isaiah helps us to understand another cause of unanswered prayer. Look with me here at Isaiah chapter 59. The very first thing that we learn in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 8, Isaiah says, let me tell you the consequence of sin. Let me tell you the consequence of sin. And in this consequence of sin, he comes straight out the gate and he says, let me give you the answer to unanswered prayer. Let me set up the setting here. God's chosen people have been in captivity in a foreign land. They are in exile. God had promised them that he would put them in a land that would be their own, a land flowing with milk and honey. But yet, that is not their current experience. They are not in their own land. They have been in exile. They are suffering. These circumstances, their current life are confusing and frustrating for the people of God. Why? Remember, God promised them blessings, protection, abundance in their own land. However, they are not currently experiencing the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so the question that's posed by the people are these, where is God? Why has he not delivered us? Can he hear us? Why is it that we have no sense of God's personal presence and power in our lives? Why is God not keeping all of his messianic promises? And so for the people of God, as they ask these questions, given their current experience in life, the only logical answers to these questions for these people in exile are either God is not strong enough or he needs a hearing aid. And it is these questions and answers that lead the prophet to speak these words in the opening section of Isaiah 59. The prophet Isaiah reminds and assures them the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. The prophet assures his hearers that God is not short-handed, nor does he need a hearing aid. So then, there must be another reason we are not experiencing God's presence, promises, and power. And he gives them the answer in verse number two. He says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah says the reason 
your prayers are going unanswered is not a deficiency in God, but rather the depravity of man. The reason some prayers go unanswered, says the prophet, is because of sin. And the prophet teaches us that sin, church, has a costly consequence. The consequence of sin is separation between God and man. Friends, sin creates a barrier between us and God. Sin erects a wall between us and God. And that wall and that barrier and that separation is so strong that God says, I refuse to hear your prayer. Let me, let me give you a sense of this, I, this word separate in the text. The word separate, when we consider the law of first mention, this word separate is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. God, when he had created the heavens of the earth, and the earth, he, he saw that there was darkness. And so then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then he saw that it was good, and the text says he separated the light from darkness. What we learn here, church, is we know that light and darkness cannot coexist. Light and darkness are mutually exclusive. Later on, God says, let there be a space, an expanse between the waters. Why? To separate the waters of heaven from the waters of earth. These two bodies of water, the waters of heaven and the waters of earth, were to, com were to be completely separated. There, there was to be no commingling of the two. And friend, this is the picture of what sin does to us in God. When we sin, it separates us. It creates an expanse so, so that there can be no commingling between us and God. God's, God, because God is holy, he cannot have fellowship with sinful people. Friends, God is holy. He, he is unlike any other. He is perfect in all his ways. There is no sin in him. He is morally perfect. And so the holiness of God demands holiness in his people. And so church, when we sin, God must separate himself from us because he is holy. And so, in this consequence of sin, he says, let me give you the answer to unanswered prayer, and it's simply this. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. And so then, in case they don't understand why it is or what their iniquities are, he says, let me give you now God's accusations against you an unholy people. Isaiah now makes accusations against an unholy people. Verse 3, he says, you are guilty of murder. He goes on to say, your lips are full of lies and corruption. 
In verse 4, he confronts them with unjust and dishonest lawsuits. And he essentially tells them that the reason your society is corrupt is because the very concept of justice itself is corrupt. Therefore, what's produced from a society such as this, according to verse 5, is adders, eggs, and spider webs. What, what picture is Isaiah painting for us? An adder is a viper, a serpent. So essentially he says, your society is full of poison. And here's the thing, with an adder's eggs, whether you try to crush it or eat it, they are still deadly. What is he talking about when he says spider webs? Remember, spider webs are full of holes. Spider webs are see-through. And so, essentially, Isaiah says, if you try to clothe yourself in the schemes of this society, then people, and God especially, will be able to see right through you. And spider webs, we know, are also hard to escape. Isaiah says, you are so depraved that you are in a rush to do evil. You, you get excited about sinning. You get running in your feet over doing injustice to others. This is how depraved you are. You, you don't hesitate to murder. You don't give a second thought to your sin. All restraint is gone. And because of this, you don't experience peace or justice in your society. And Isaiah says, these are the reasons that God has turned away from his chosen people. Friends, Isaiah paints the picture that because of the sinfulness of God's people, God has to turn his back on his people. These are the reasons that God does not hear the prayers of his people. So then, we've now been confronted with our sin. We've been given the consequence of our sin. What are we to do with this now? Are we just, just, just supposed to hear these accusations against us and, 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 and feel some type of way? What, how do we respond to this confrontation and these consequences? That's the next movement, verses 9 through 15a. After the consequence of sin is given, we now have the confession of sin. Look, look, look at verse 9. Through 11, here, here is how it starts. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at, at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like Bears, we moan and moan like doves. 
We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Notice that there is a change in pronoun here. In the first section, when he's calling out the sin, he says, they, there. But now he says, we. He, he stands, Isaiah the prophet now stands as a representative of the people before most holy God. And so Isaiah teaches us that when we recognize the condition of our sinfulness, the proper response is to mourn. Verses 9 through 11 is a lament. It is a funeral song. Trans, true repentance begins with sorrow for your sin. True repentance begins with sorrow for your sin. And so what we see here is the prophet on behalf of the people is agonizing over the sin of the people. Look at the agony of sin here. Now, now, let me stop here and say, when I say you should be, there should be sorrow for your sin, there's two ways you can be sorry for your sin. Some people are sorry that they got caught. That's not the sorrow for sin that we see here. It's not that you just got caught, but, but I have sorrow for my sin because I know I've offended most holy God. Friends, we should agonize over our sin. We should feel the pain and the weight of our sin. Sorrow for sin is holy agony. Why? Why should we agonize over our sin? Because our sin grieves the Spirit of God. Our sin should break our heart because we have offended our good God. Thomas Watson, in his book on repentance, says our sorrow for sin should be as great as for any worldly loss. We must grieve more for offending God than for the loss of dear relationships. Watch this. He goes on to say, our sorrow for sin should exceed sorrow at the grave. For in the burial of the dead, it is only a friend that departs. But in sin, God departs. Let me give that back to you again. He says, sorrow for sin should exceed sorrow at the grave. I've been to enough graveside services to see the hurt, the pain, the agony of that loss of a loved one, that loss of mom, that loss of grandfather, that loss of grandmother, and people there. And, and Thomas Watson says, your sorrow for your sin should exceed that. Because 
in the burial of the dead, you lose a friend that departs. But in sin, God departs. There's agony for sin. But not only do we see agony for sin in the text, but then we move from agony to admission of sin in the text. Friends, true repentance does not end with agony for sin. True repentance also involves admission of sin. In other words, we are to confess our sin when faced with the consequences of separation from God. This is what happens in verses 12 through 15a. The prophet begins to admit confess their sins. He says, our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Friends, this idea of confession is all over the Bible. This is the part of repentance that no one likes. It's one thing to confess our sin in private to God, but it's another thing to confess our sin in community. See how quiet y'all got? Yeah, Brandon, I can confess my sin to God. When I'm there by myself in my quiet space, I can confess it. But you mean you want me to get in community and confess sin? No, I don't. God does. James chapter 5, we just heard this a few weeks ago. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Here's, here's why we ought to confess. I was reading in Psalm 32, and here's what uh, King David wrote in Psalm 32. He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here it is. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He says in Psalm 32, silence of sin led to physical weakness and grieving. Friends, this is what happens when we conceal our sin. When we conceal sin inside of our hearts and our minds, it literally starts eating away at us. Friends, let me tell you right now, sin is too heavy of a burden to carry. David says his pardon, his forgiveness, his freedom, his, his emancipation did not come until he acknowledged his sin to God and confessed it 
to God. This is exactly what we see in 1 John 1 and 9 when, we, when he tells us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, in confessing our sin, we admit our guilt before God. In confessing our sin, we stop acting like Adam and Eve. What do you mean, Brandon? Remember, Adam and Eve were in the garden. God put them there, told them you can have whatever. He gave, the first thing that God gave Adam and Eve was freedom. You are free to eat. That's what he said. Dang. Every time I say, I give, every time I give y'all something free, it adds a few minutes to the sermons. This is free. Those people who think that Christianity is all about following rules and what you can and cannot do, go back and read the Bible. God wants you to be free. He says you are free to eat of every tree in this garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God gives us freedom with boundaries. He doesn't, they, they, he puts them in the garden, this serpent shows up, they listen to this talking snake, and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God comes in the garden, he says, Adam, where art thou? What have you done? And here's what Adam does. The woman you gave me. <laughs> God talks to Eve, Eve, what, what, what's up? That's the Brandon Reddick translation, by the way. Her response is, the serpent. What they do is, they try to blame their sin on others. They refuse to accept responsibility for their own sin. And at the end, what we, and what we see them do, once they, once they see that they are naked, they try to cover themselves. That is man's natural response to sin. We want to cover it, we want to conceal it, and we, want, we do not want to take responsibility for it. Think about it. Think about what we do now. And even in the church, well, my upbringing. We don't want to accept responsibility for our sin. My spouse made me do it. They able. <laughs> Hold on, it's not a comedy session. When we confess our sin, we are accepting responsibility for our own sin. We're not trying to cover it, we're not trying to conceal it, and we're not blaming it on any others or, or, or any other circumstances. We're saying, God, I'm guilty. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guilty by nature and by choice. And this is why we when we confess our sin, we are saying, God, I'm guilty. I know I am. I've broken your holy law. And friends, in confessing our sin, we acknowledge our guilt. We're also pleading for God's grace. 
When we confess our sin, we hand over our sin to God. When we confess our sin, we cast it into the fiery oven of God's burning love. Friend, confessing sin creates a pathway for forgiveness of sin. So then, like the people in our text, we need to take time individually to confess our sin. We need to make this a part of our regular devotional life. Make this a part of a regular movement in your prayer life. And as I said earlier, not only should we confess individually, but our text shows us that this is a corporate confession of sin. Yes, yes, yes. We need to learn to confess sin in community. This is risky, but it's biblical and necessary. Why don't we like confessing sin in community? But what are they going to think about me? I know what I'm going to think about you. You're a sinner. But guess what? I was already thinking that about you. Because that's what the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the reasons we don't like to confess sin is because of sin, the sin which is the fear of man. That's what it all boils down to. I fear what you're going to think about me. I fear how you are going to treat me. I fear about what you're going to say about me. Friends, the Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. In other words, the fear of man is a trap. It's time to grow up, church. And growing up, maturity means I care more about what God thinks about me than what you think about me. They confess sin. This is the proper response to this kind of sermon. We see the consequences of sin. We see the confession of sin. Is there any hope? For our problem of sin. Sin creates separation between God and man. Is there any hope? Last section, beginning with verse 15, the B section of verse 15. Here's what it says. The Lord saw it. That's the response I was looking for. Friends, the hope, the great hope of the world is this. The Lord sees. When it, this gives us the assurance that our God is not blind nor insensitive. He sees, church. And somebody in here today needs to just hear this word. God sees you. He sees the hurt, the pain. He sees the injustice that you are are experiencing. God sees it. 
when we look at what's going on in our world, where sometimes we are prone to, to, to ask ourselves, where is God? He sees. The text says he saw the evil of injustice. But not only did he see the evil, but he also saw that there was no man to intercede. That they were not able, church, to save themselves. This is how broken they are. This is how totally depraved they are. That they can't even save themselves. No one was capable of saving them. And God's response in that, at that point could have been, oh well, here you go. You sin, that created separation, boom, you're destroyed. But that's not what the text says. The text says, he saw it, it displeased him, there was no justice and there was nobody there to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. So we see the Lord's observation in the first part, but then we move from the Lord's observation to the Lord's intervention. God intervenes on his own. He says, even though you can't even save your own self, I'll step in myself and save you. See, your, their sin had so far separated them from God that they were unable to save themselves so that the only person, the only kind of person that could save them was somebody that was completely different from them, which was God himself. Humanity could not save humanity, so divinity had to step in. What they needed was not just a man, but they needed a God-man. And so God says, I'm going to come myself in the person of my son, Jesus Christ, and he's going to intercede on your behalf. The, 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 the solution to our sin problem is not better behavior. The solution to our sin problem is not uh, uh, more self-will or self-discipline. The solution to our sin problem is God himself. And so God says, since nobody else on the earth can intervene, I'll just intervene myself. Church, I get happy right now just thinking about the fact that God loved me even when I was unlovely. So that's why I stand up here as hot as it is and shout about being saved, saved, saved. Because I know how jacked up I am. I know how sinful I am. But God stepped in, took my penalty for me so that I could have a right relationship with him. God says, I'll do it all on my own. I don't need nobody else's help because it ain't going to be no help at all because you are helpless on your own. But with Jesus, we are forgiven, church. He says, I, I, I intervene. And when he shows up, he shows up in his fighting clothes. <laughs> this text should have taken you to Ephesians uh, uh, 6, the whole armor of God. God comes in with his armor on ready to fight your battle. <laughs> Friends, we are in a battle when it comes to sin. And God says, I got you. I will fight this battle for you. He, 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 the text says that his own arm 
brought salvation. The arm is a metaphor for his power. God says, I, I, I step in and I will save you. I will rescue you from this condition of sin that separates us. So we see the Lord's observation. We see the Lord's intervention. But finally, we see the Lord's vindication. Verse 18, according to their deeds, so will he repay Wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. Friends, he says, verse 19, they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. The text makes it clear that God has enemies. God has adversaries. Scripture says, that we all inherit, inherit a sin nature. We are born in sin, shaping in iniquity, which means that we are natural born enemies of God. And that's what the world needs to wrestle with. And am I an enemy of God or am I a friend of God? Those are the only two places for all of humanity. You're either an enemy of God or you're a friend of God. And I just said, you are naturally born an enemy of God because you've got a sin nature. And we just heard that sin separates us from God. So then how do I not experience what the text just said? How do, how do I avoid, avert this repayment that God's going to give to his adversary and his enemy? How do I move from being an enemy of God to being, to be a friend of God? The text says that what we need, verse 20, is a redeemer. That word redeem means to, to buy back. We need to be redeemed in order to move from experiencing God's wrath to experiencing God's love. That redeemer, Isaiah, throughout all his book, he talks about this suffering servant. That suffering servant, friend, 
is Jesus. And so what we see throughout all of history is God intervening on behalf of his chosen people to redeem them so that they can be in right relationship with him so they can live for his glory alone. This text is a wonderful theological text because it confronts us. It's a gospel passage. It confronts us with the holiness of God and how unholy we are. The consequence being separation. Separation in the Bible, by the way, is death. So then, what do we do? We can't do anything, so God does it all for us. He intervenes again on our behalf and sends Jesus Christ to to pay the penalty that we owe, take the punishment that we deserve, so that we can be in right relationship with God, so that we can move from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. And then God promises at the end of the text, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. Because I don't save you just to shout about being saved. I saved you for a purpose. You're going to live now holy lives. And the only way you can do that is if I give you a new spirit. And God says, I'll put my own spirit in you, verse 21. And now once I put my spirit in you, now you're going to be, here it is, on mission for me. Is that in the text, Brandon, or did you just try to No, it's in there. Look, 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 verse 21. He said, my spirit is upon you, and my words have I put in your mouth. God doesn't put his words in your mouth just to expand your vocabulary. (laughs) He puts his words in your mouth so that you can be a prophet yourself, so that you can speak his word to the world. He saves you to live a holy life. That's why he puts a new spirit in you. But then he gives a spirit uh, to you not only to live holy lives, but to empower you to live on mission for him, to speak his word of truth to the rest of the world. And the result is, he says, everybody's going to fear my name, even my enemies. When they experience my wrath, they will fear my name. Friends, at the end of the day, everybody is going to have to bow down to the king of kings. Why do our prayers go unanswered? Worship team, you can start making your way back up here. Why do we not experience the wonderful truth of God's promises? Concerning prayer, unconfessed, unrepented sin. And so as the worship team comes now, I'm just, I just want to take us, I just want us to take a moment right now to personally examine ourselves 
and confess any unconfessed sin before God. That's a natural movement of prayer. Jesus even modeled this for us when he taught his disciples to pray. He said, pray in this manner, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, our own debtors. We need to feel the weight of our sin so that we can agonize over it. And, and, and that, that's what it means to be godly sorrowful. And Thomas Watson said, this morning, this sorrow ought to be greater than losing a closest loved one. One day, Some, either I'm going to lose Connie or Connie's going to lose me first. I'm, no, I'm not closer to anybody else in this world than my own spouse. We are one, declares the Bible. And I can't even begin to fathom losing my wife. It pains me just to even consider it and think of it. Our sin is so great. He says, that's how sorrowful you should be. It should surpass losing whoever is the closest loved one you have on earth. Spouse. Parent. Oh, this is where I'll get some of you. Child. That's how heavy your sin is. We don't have to stay there, though. We have hope that God stands ready to forgive. He's waiting on you to come to yourself, come to your senses, confess your sin. He says, I'm standing right here, arms wide open, to welcome you back into the community and to fellowship with me, to right relationship with me. Forgiveness is available because my son has paid your penalty in full. He took your punishment upon himself. Friends, God loves us even when we're most unlovely. Sin separates us, but grace restores us. I don't care what you've done. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. Grace is greater. Take a moment. Just pray. Examine a prayer of examination and confession. Come on, church. Church.